Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church online service. We're thankful uh, to be here. We're thankful to be able to join you, join together with you. Brethren, I am looking forward to the day when we can meet again. I don't know about you, but I think I, I will be running around high-fiving everybody and hugging. Uh, well, they may not let me do that the first day, but I look forward to a day when we can come back, where we can get back to some level of normalcy. But I do believe that the absence certainly makes the heart grow fonder. I've, I've learned a few things in this whole thing. I've learned that I need structure in my life. I've learned that I need the gathering of God's people. And I've learned that I can't stop touching my face. I've certainly learned those, th those three things and, and during this time. We're thankful, though, for the technology that allows us to, to see each other during a prayer time and to communicate during an online service, such as band, going back and forth as we listen to the service. But we have to realize there are some things that we can't do together unless we are physically together. Tim Challies uh, wrote an article this past week, and he used the analogy of marriage to make this point. He speaks of physically being separated from his wife, though he can still uh, chat over the video. Uh, he he sp spoke of FaceTime specifically. He states this. He says, there are certain things we can only do as a husband and wife, certain things we can only be as spouses when we share the same space. There are certain things we cannot do, certain things we cannot be when we are connected only through cyberspace. In fact, the great blessings of marriage are the very elements that are most obviously lacking through cameras and screens. So while FaceTime provides a kind of togetherness, a kind of presence, it is only ever that kind of. Chalice goes on to say that, that Facebook serves to increase the longing of, to be truly together. Online church, though necessary for a time, is a shadow of the real thing and cannot replace the true gathering. I hope that you will see that more than ever now. As we've been separated for now the second week, I hope that you'll see the, the importance of the gathering. We're thankful again to be able to broadcast our service online, but I trust that you have a sense of longing to be back together very soon. Having said that, having made that statement this morning, we will be returning to our study in Ephesians. I think that we do need to get back to as much normality as, as possible, starting with our regular study through, the Paul, through Paul's letter to the two Ephesus. I'm certain there is more to say regarding the COVID-19 situation, but I think that you will find our study in Ephesians to be incredibly timeful, timely, that is, this morning. So let me pray, and then I will read uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 13 to set the context. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for being able to gather here to, online. Father, we do, again, so much look forward to the day that we can be together. May you bless the preaching of your word this morning. The one thing that we can do is proclaim the word of God, that we can explain it, we can proclaim it, and we can proclaim the gospel via this, this medium. We praise you this morning for, for that. In Christ's name, amen. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, let me just start with verse 1. 
Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the purpose, the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Well, from the time we planted as a church, we have professed trust in God's word. We believe that God has revealed his truth in the canon of scripture, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. But how do we know what's true and what's not? The question makes us, makes, makes us be even more specific about what we believe, or this question, that is, makes us even be more specific about what we believe and why, why we believe it. In other words, we believe that the Bible is, the rightly, is, right, that the Bible is true and is the Word of God when we rightly interpret it. As a sidebar, this summer I hope to take several weeks, we hope to take several weeks to study the sufficiency and the authority of scriptures. I hope that you'll make plans to be with us for that. But let me say the word of God must be rightly understood. But many people twist the words of scripture to their own peril. Listen to what the apostle Peter has to say about this. In 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16, he says this, therefore, beloved, since you since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also beloved our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to, to him, given him, that is, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand. Then he says this, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So what Peter is saying here is that there are some who are untaught and some who are unstable who would distort. And they would distort not only Paul's writing, but they would also distort the rest of the, of the scriptures. And he says they would do so to their own destruction. Now let me very graphically illustrate this with a story. John Wayne Brown Jr., a snake handling evangelist, was bitten by one of his timber rattlesnakes in the middle of his sermon. Though Brown continued to speak to the people of Rock House Holiness Church that October night, 
1998, he soon collapsed. The congregation gathered around him, praying, trying to cool him with an electric fan, but Brown was dead within minutes. Brown, 34, had handled snakes since he was 17 and had survived 22 previous snake bites. He left behind five orphaned children. His wife, Melinda, died from a snake bite during a revival service in 1995. One pastor who was on stage with Brown that the night of his death said he didn't think the tragedy would make the church change its practices. Though he said, I think they will be more careful about handling serpents. I think they will wait until the Lord moves on them. Then he goes on to say this. This is eye-opening. A lot of people don't understand us, he offered. We are just normal people, but we believe God's word. Recently, Jamie Coots, a third-generation snake handler, has, has been the most famous of the snake handling pastors. He even had his own reality show called Snake Salvation. Coots died from a bite on his right hand as his service was being filmed for this uh, reality show. After he died, his son Cody soon took up the, the reins as pastor, and he was bitten and, and he was bitten and almost died in 2018. Now, we can say this that these people certainly put their beliefs in action, into action. They, they're actually inspired by two verses in Matthew 16, 18, and it, sa it says this. Actually, Matthew 16, 17, it says this. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, Obviously, there is great peril in getting these scriptures wrong. Now, two quick comments I think should be made here. First, this section of scripture doesn't even doesn't actually appear in the earliest and most reliable transcripts. In other words, we can't be absolutely certain that Mark even authored these verses. Second, even if he did, we shouldn't solely base any doctrine and practice on them. We should, we should not see them as normative for the church. Miraculous signs, that is, miraculous signs were promised to the, the apostles and prophets during the early stages of the church. Scripture records that Paul, Scripture actually records Paul being bitten by a serpent in 80, or 80, in Acts 28.5. In other words, these miracles were used to establish the truth of the apostles' teachings. Now, some may say, what about us? Don't we get to partake in all of God's promises? Shouldn't I be able to take up poisonous serpents and drink poison? Didn't you say that we have the power of God in us? Yes, I did say that. Yes, the scriptures do teach that. The scriptures teach that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But, beloved, we must be careful to understand what the biblical authors intended to convey when we interpret Scripture. In other words, we must ask questions such as, what does it mean that I have the power of God in me? Why, what, what was God's purpose in giving me the power of God? We must ask, what was God's purpose then in giving people the ability to take up serpents and to heal and to speak in tongues? And I would argue, as I've already said, that he show, he's showing that the apostles and the prophets, the New Testament prophets, have been given authority from God to speak prior to the establishment of, 
the canon of Scripture. Now, here's where I'm, let me connect back to Ephesians here. We must recognize that this is all according to God's plan and purpose. Therefore, to keep from getting drawn into dangerous errors, we must work to better grasp his plan and purpose. To better understand these, the better we understand these, the less likely that we're to be tricked by the craftiness of men who distort the truth for their personal gain. The Apostle Paul says this exact same thing in Ephesians 4. Remember, in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, he gives us the mystery. And in chapter 3, he pleads personally about the, the ministry of the mystery. And in chapter 4, he begins to tell us how we are to walk according to the knowledge that we have been given. And he says in Ephesians 4.14, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trick, trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. In other words, as the result of our growth in maturity, we are no longer to be tossed here and there and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now we find that Paul's answer to the threat of being carried about by every wind of doctrine. We find his answer in 4.15. He says this, this is the answer. This is the answer for, for how we avoid this error, these errors. We, he says this, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So what Paul is saying is, is that, the love, that, that we need to be speaking the truth to one another, that we need to be teaching the truth to one another. And as we do so, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is, at, who is the head, even Christ. We are to grow in maturity to become more and more like Christ. Now, we have been working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I would argue that in this treatise, Paul has carefully explained the astonishing story of God's redemptive plan from all eternity. Again, I would argue that when we grasp God's eternal purpose and plan, we will be less focused on secondary issues such as the miraculous. We will begin to see those things in the overall context of God's purposes. We will begin then, get this, we will begin to see the miraculous nature of God's redemptive plan. Let me say that again. We will begin to see the miraculous nature of God's redemptive plan, which is far greater than any miracle such as taking up serpents and drinking poison. Also, when we begin to comprehend God's eternal plan, we will begin to be able to better interpret Scripture. We will be able to be, be, be better see, that is, we will better see what God has accomplished in eternity. Now, this morning, we're picking up on part three of the sermon I've titled God's Call to Ministry. This section started in verse two and goes all the way to 13. In this passage, Paul is personally pleading with the Ephesians to persevere in the gospel. This section has been, is an is a interlude in a larger prayer for the, for the church at Ephesus. And he will pick up on that larger prayer in verse 14. But in verses 2 through 13, uh, we find an intensely personal section for Paul. He is languished in jail for five years specifically for preaching the gospel of grace through faith to the Gentiles. He is concerned that the churches would lose heart since he's in jail. He is very concerned, actually, that the church at Ephesus would fall away, considering its strategic importance in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
And in verses two through six, he reminds, this is chapter three, verses two through six, he reminds the church at Ephesus of the purposes of the mystery. God has made Gentiles to be fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus. More particularly, God has brought Jew and Gentile together, forming a new creation in Christ. This mystery had been revealed to Paul, who had been a, made a minister of this good news. In verses 7 through 13, we have studied Paul's, we studied, began to study, that is, Paul's description of Christ's calling of him to this stewardship. And in doing so, we have studied seven characteristics uh, of God's call to ministry, which we can apply to every Christian. You see, each Christian is called to a unique ministry that's unique to him or her. But each calling has these unique characteristics. Now, we'll pick up on the final two characteristics today, but let me quickly review the first five. Number one, God, God calls us to ministry in his prerogative. Look at verse seven. Lost my water. <laughs> Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says that God made him a minister of the gospel and gave him the gifts that he needed to do the work. You see, Paul didn't choose the work, nor did he choose the gifting. This was all according to God's prerogative, God's sovereign choice. Beloved, God calls you to ministry according to his own prerogative. You don't get a choice in the matter. He gives you the work, and he gives you the gifting. In other words, he prepares the work beforehand, but he also prepares the worker. And he does so, number two, point number two, by his own, or characteristic number two, by his, his preference. Paul said that he was made a preacher of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace. Generally speaking, the giver of the gifts chooses the gift given. Moms and dads may ask what the children want for Christmas, but the, the mom and dad, the parents, make the ultimate choice. In this case, we don't even get to ask. God makes the choice. God chooses the gifting. God gives us the ministry by his preference, and he does so, characteristic number three, according to his power. Paul says that God does this according to the outworking of his power. In other words, God gives us ministry and nothing can thwart this. Beloved, if you are doing ministry, which God has given you to do, then you will be amazed at how God works through you. Have you ever watched someone truly use their spiritual gifts for ministry? Beloved, when we do that, when we see this, when we see people use their spiritual gifts, it's as if God himself is working through them because he is working through them. We witness this because we're witnessing the power of God. A.W. Tozer says this, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Surely we are the most favored of all creatures, end quote. Beloved, you lack nothing. You have been given the power of God. You haven't been given the power of God to, to take up serpents and to drink poison because that's not what is required. God gives you what you need to do the ministry that you need to do. If you needed to pick up serpents, poisonous serpents, and, and drink poisonous 
poison, then, then he would give you that ability. But you don't need that ability. But, beloved, we lack nothing of God's power in doing his will. But our sin sinful inclination is to rely on our own strength. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says this, The holiest of Christians and those who understand best the gospel of Christ find in themselves a constant inclination to look to the power of the creature instead of looking to the power of God and the power of God alone. End quote. Brethren, if you are yielded to the will of God in your life to reveal your path and the power of God to guide you, he will mightily work through you. And he will do so, characteristic number four, regardless of your position. Paul says that Christ used them even though he was least of all the saints. Paul had persecuted the church, yet God chose him as his vessel to take the gospel to the saints. Regardless of our position, God uses us. He uses the poor. He uses the rich. <clears throat> he uses the intelligent and the not-so-intelligent. He uses kings and paupers. But the flip side of this is true. He will not use us if we're relying on our position. In other words, he will not use you if you're dependent upon the flesh. Listen to Paul Washer. He says this. The more you trust in the arm of the flesh, the less you're going to see of the power of God, end quote. Oswald Chambers says this, every element of our own self-reliance must be put to death by the power of God, end quote. Beloved, if you, if you put away your self-reliance, he will use you regardless of your position in this world. You don't have to have some high position in order to be used by God. As a matter of fact, it may be a detriment. And he does this, characteristic number five, for his plan. Beloved, never forget that God, the creator of all things, has planned the redemption of man from the foundation of the world. Before man fell in the garden, God had already formulated his plan of redemption. None of this, none of these things that we see took God by surprise. That's, that's, why, that's why we can confidently say that God has been caught, has not been, that is, caught off guard by anything. He has not been caught off guard by, by anything. Even our current crisis, crisis, he completely knew, and he has a plan to use it for his glory. God will bring every aspect that nothing will fall away. Every aspect of his plan will be brought to fruition in his wisdom. He will miss nothing. And that leads us to characteristic number six. He will do the, all these things in accordance with his purposes. We started this, this point last time. According to Paul, God has brought to light this mystery which has been hidden in God from eternity. And he says in, in verse 10, he says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, God is making his wisdom known to the angelic realm. Did you know that every time, did you know that every time we meet as a church, we are a statement to the angelic realm that God through Christ is victorious? 
Every time the redeemed of God gather, we are a demonstration that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Now, specifically, I believe that God is demonstrating his manifold wisdom to those who have played a role in leading all of humanity in transgression, sin, and death. Namely, God is demonstrating to Satan and his demons that he is demonstrating his wisdom to them, his wisdom of redemption through his son. You see, they currently exercise power over the unbelieving world. But Christ suffered and died on the cross. He went to the grave. He was raised from the dead on the third day, and he ascended to the throne of God. Thus, he demonstrated that sin and death have no power over him. And Paul then has revealed that the church, that you and I, the church, is in Christ. That in him, in him, we too have been raised from the realm of the dead. We have been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Sin and death have no ultimate power over us because of what Christ has accomplished at the cross. Therefore, we are a demonstration of God's manifold wisdom. We are a demonstration every time we come together. We are a demonstration of the power and wisdom of God to the heavenly authorities who always lay behind even the earthly authorities that we see. And this is God's eternal purpose, which he worked. Look at your text, verse 11. This is God's eternal purpose, which he worked in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the garden, Satan thought he had prevailed. He had taken down man, the pinnacle of God's creation. He, but he hadn't counted on God sending his own son to be a man. He hadn't counted on God sending his very own son to be a man to, to die on the cross to defeat sin and death, to crush the head of Satan. As powerful as Satan is, he could not look forward to see the church. It was just as big a mystery to, to Satan as it was to anyone. Couldn't understand God creating new man in Christ Jesus, his son. But God had purposed all these things from the beginning. And nothing can frustrate Nothing can frustrate God's purposes and plan. I hope you believe that. Let me get personal with you for a moment. I'm certain that some of you have sensed the fragility of life, especially considering this virus scare. A virus that we can't see has completely turned our lives upside down. Some of you may be concerned about the medical impact. What if I get sick? Or what if someone I love gets sick? Some of you may be concerned about the financial impacts. Some of you are dealing with other trials outside of the virus. So you have, it's a, it's a double whammy. But according to this scripture, if you are in Christ, then God's plans and purposes for you cannot be hindered. They cannot be changed. You don't have to worry. There is no need for anxiety. We can trust that God works all things to our good if we know and if we love him, if we're called according to his purpose. We know that God will keep us. We know that our life is a demonstration. Our lives are a demonstration to the, to the demonic 
forces, the rulers and authorities is what Paul calls them. Our life is a demonstration of Christ's victory over sin and death. Beloved, I believe the last characteristic of God's call to minister to ministry speaks to our situation as well. Listen to the, the last characteristic. God calls us to ministry, number seven, to reveal our perseverance. <clears throat> look at verse, verse 12. Look at, look at your text. In verse 12, it says, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Paul says, starts out this phrase with in whom, that is in Christ. This harkens back to all that Paul has said about our position in Christ. Throughout the first three chapters, Paul has used this phrase. He, has says, he says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. He says in Christ we have, the re- we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In Christ, we have been made alive in him. In Christ, we have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies. In Christ, we have been shown the riches of his grace. And in Christ, we have been brought near to God. Now, Paul says that in Christ, all those things are true. But because those things are true, and because you are in Christ, we can have boldness and confident access to God. In chapter 2, verse 18, Paul had already made that point, that Jews and Gentiles can now have access in one spirit to the Father. Here he wants us to recognize that this access to God in Christ stands as a clear witness that God is displaying his manifold witness to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Have you ever thought about it? The fact that you have instant access to the God of of heaven through prayer is a a demonstration to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, a demonstration of what God has done, the demonstration of his redemption. Now, Paul describes this access to God in two ways. First, he says that there's boldness. The word translated boldness can be defined as courage and confidence to approach the throne of God. Just think of just think for a minute of approaching an earthly king on his throne. You wouldn't be able to just walk into the throne room without being given access. Just this week, I read the story of a Georgia man who decided that he wanted to speak to President Ronald Reagan while he was president while the president, that is, was playing golf at Augusta National. Uh, U.S. steel workers at the time were losing their jobs. This Georgia man wanted to discuss it with the president. So he did what any true redneck would do. He jumped into his blue Dodge pickup truck and he rammed the gate. And actually, surprisingly, he ended up very close to the president. He saw him at a short distance, but he was unable to speak to him. He knew that if he walked up to the president, he would literally be blown to smithereens. So as close as he was, he knew that he had no access to the president. This, this man was sentenced to a five-year, five-year prison term for that stunt, yet he was never able to speak to Ronald Reagan. 
Beloved, you don't have direct access to the president of the United States, even if you physically break down barriers. But according to Paul, the barriers to the creator himself, the barriers to a holy God have been broken down. In Christ, you have been given boldness and confident access to approach the throne of God. And we can know that that God also hears our request. It's not as if you have this access and God doesn't listen to you. God actually will listen to your request. We have been given blessed assurance that God hears us and that God will answer us. We have a, we have a relationship that is so close that we can speak freely with him at any time. Why do you think Paul can say, pray without ceasing? It's a constant communion with God. We can have confidence that he will hear us and he will act upon our request. He will never forsake us. The writer of Hebrews says much the same thing in Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace grace to help in the time in time of need so paul wants us to trust that god hears us in our distress he hears us in our time of need he will never leave us he will always listen to us and he will give us the wisdom we need to navigate great trials and difficulties it was as we go about doing his work the reason why we have this access beloved is that as we go about doing the will of god in the power of god we have this direct access to the throne to be able to commune with god so that he might encourage us look at your text it says that this happens this this confident access this boldness and confident access happens through faith in him now this text can be translated in two different ways the NASB and the ESV and the New King James Version have all translated this verse through faith in him. The Net Bible, the New English Translation Bible, has translated this verse because of Christ's faithfulness. Now, let me say first that all four of these are faithful English translations which try to get the text right. So the question is, which is correct? So it's either our faith or Christ's faithfulness. I think it's very difficult to make a call, but I actually, in this case, lean toward the traditional view that it's our faith that Paul has in view here. I believe that because in 2.8, in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul makes it clear that we are saved by grace through faith. He even makes it clear that the faith with which we believe doesn't originate. He says this in, in, in chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. He says this faith doesn't originate from ourselves, but it is the gift of God. Therefore, then I believe that Paul is pointing to the faith through which we are saved, which allows us then to boldly and confidently approach the throne of God. Now, having said this, we must recognize that our faith is meaningless If the object of our faith, that is Christ, were not himself faithful. So even if if Paul is specifically speaking of our faith, he presupposes then the faithfulness of Christ. 
Therefore, the question of whether Paul is speaking of one or the other, whether he's speaking of our faith or Christ's faithfulness, becomes a moot point. Because if our faith, if he's speaking of our faith, then the object of our faith is what the, is the true issue. Now, we can put faith in many things, right? We can put faith in science. We can put faith in medicine. We can put faith in modern technology. We can even put faith in angels. But our faith proves to be worthless when those things fail. As Christians, we put our faith in Christ, who is faithful and cannot fail. Beloved, the question is, have you put your faith in Christ? Not only for salvation, but for everything. Are you, what are you trusting in instead of Christ? Are you trusting in the government? You know, those stimulus checks that are supposed to be in the mail? Are you trusting in science to, to find a, a vaccine for the coronavirus? Or maybe you're trusting in the quarantine to protect you from getting this virus. Or maybe it's medicine to nurse you back to health when you're sick. Or maybe even some of you are trusting in the military to protect you from the invading hordes. Beloved Christian, you have been given access to the throne of God. You have been saved by grace through faith. We have, uh, we are, we have placed our faith in Christ who is faithful. He will never forsake you or I. We don't have to place our trust in all those other things, beloved. He wants us to put his, our trust completely in him. Look at your text. Paul writes, therefore, I ask you, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul says, therefore, uh, what he's getting at is based on everything that I've just said to you, based on everything that I've just pleaded with you personally, let me, let, me review, let me review for a moment the truths that Paul wants the church at Ephesus to understand and the truths that he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that God has called us to ministry in his prerogative. He, he's done so by his preference, according to his power, regardless of our position, for his plan, in accordance with his purposes, which reveals our perseverance. Brethren, if that statement is true, and if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, then there is absolutely nothing to fear. And if it's true, then there's no reason. Look at your text. Paul says this. There's no reason to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. Paul is saying, look, church, I may rot in prison for the rest of my life, but God's plans in Christ God's plans in the church will not be frustrated. They cannot be frustrated. He says that these trials that these trials have he's suffered have been on the behalf of the Gentile church, and he's willingly suffered for their sake. Now he's calling for the church to continue God's call to minister the gospel. He's saying, look, look at my suffering. I am doing so willingly. I am willingly suffering for you on your behalf so go forward persevere preach the gospel preach it in the power of christ 
Beloved, this is the same call for us today. We are to carry on with the preaching of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is why I'm actually excited right now as we bear the burden of COVID-19. Now, I don't like this any more than anybody else. But I do believe that the true church will rise to the occasion. I believe that those who are yours will rise in the power of God according to the plan and the purpose of God. And I, I believe, I actually believe as a church that we will be stronger on the other side of this. We, we were made as a church, beloved, I don't know if you know this and realize this, but we were made for conflict. God never meant for the church to be on easy street. We, we desire to get over on easy street, but in reality, God wants us over on suffering way. That's where the church flourishes. I don't like that any more than you do in my flesh, but I recognize it. I recognize it in the pages of scripture. God calls us to persevere through suffering. He calls us to persevere through difficulty through a bold and confident access to him. He calls us to consider those who have come before us, such as the Apostle Paul, who suffered much hardship for the sake of the gospel. Paul ends this, this section with the phrase, for they are your glory. In other words, Paul's suffering demonstrates the authenticity, that is, of Paul's ministry. By the way, it's Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. It's Paul's ministry to churches like the church at Ephesus. We've talked about this before. Paul, the apostle, would not have suffered and died for a lie. He would not have given up his entire life because of a, uh, because of a, a connect. He would not have given up his entire life outside of a full conviction of what Christ was accomplishing through him. You see, Paul's tribulation were a tribulations were a testament to the truth of what God was doing among the Gentiles. Paul's suffering then was a, was a foretaste. I want you to get this. Paul's suffering was a foretaste of what God would accomplish through the church. Brethren, these truths have not changed. At, as we end the near, near that is the end of this church age, the true people of God will shine forth even brighter. I'm excited. I'm excited at how God will use our little church in the next, in the coming months and years. I hope that you will get a glimpse of the power of God at work in the church. I hope you will clearly see the purposes of God as he works through your individual ministries. I'm constantly amazed at how God works through his people. I know that some of you are experiencing trials right now. I know that some of you are experiencing great difficulties. I counsel you to remember what God is accomplishing in the world through his people. And what he is accomplishing in, in redemption is much greater than any of our trials. I pray that you will look for God's greater purpose and plan in your difficulty. I pray that you will persevere. And as you do, I hope that you will use your access to the throne as your comfort. At the beginning of the sermon, I used the example of those who teach Christians that Christians, that, that those, I use the example that those who pick up serpents and drink poison are proof of God, that they are God's people, or proof, doing so proves that they're God's people. Brothers and sisters, 
I would actually say suffering well through trials is the true proof that we are God's people. I think the truth of what God is accomplishing through his people is much greater than any miraculous sign. Yes, there was a period when God used miraculous signs to to attest to the works of God through God's people. But we must realize that we can, we must realize what we can accomplish through the power of God, rightly understood. Rightly understood. See, these people who are picking up serpents and these people who are drinking poison and doing all these odd things, they're missing the entire point. That it's God using our God using us, giving us gifts in order to do his will, in order to see the, the gospel go out, in order to preach the gospel. The true miracle is when a lost person comes to know Christ. True miracle. David Platt says this nothing is impossible for the people of God who trust in the power of God to accomplish the will of God. End quote. Beloved, the will of God is that the gospel be preached to the nations. The will of God is that he be glorified in our lives. Listen to J.I. Packer. He says this. Our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God and the power of God for the glory of God. Beloved, you and I, our church, We have been given ministry that is far greater, far greater than taking up serpents or drinking poison. As a church, I pray that you will come to understand how privileged we are to be called to the ministry of the King. How privileged you are to be a part of the preaching of the gospel to the nations. Paul said, Paul called the the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.21 to this ministry of reconciliation that we would preach the gospel to those who don't don't know you. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we'll close here. Picking up, picking up in 5.18. It says, therefore, from now on, I'm sorry, that's verse 16, verse 18. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That that is the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. That's the power of God, beloved. That's the power of God working through us. That's the power of God accomplishing his will. That's the power of God bringing glory to himself. But we, are, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Then he gives us the message. This is the message that we're preaching. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, we're not to be tossed to and fro. We are to be on point, 
preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that, so that the nations would come to know him. In this time of difficulty, it, all the more we ought to be preaching the gospel. All the more we ought to be preaching he who made, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. We should be preaching the cross. We should be preaching Christ crucified. Oh, it's going to be a stumbling block to some. It will be a stumbling block to many. But this is the power of God and the will of God, that you preach the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you that we could gather here online. Father, we look forward to the day that we can be together. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't get pulled to and fro, that we wouldn't, we would keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is your glory. The main thing is to preach your, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to preach the gospel to your glory. Father, I pray that as a church, we would do just that. I pray as a church, when you, as you call us to ministry, that we would understand that you are the one who does, that, does so under, in your prerogative, by your preference, according to your power, regardless of our position, uh, for your plan, in accordance with your purposes. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to persevere in it that we would persevere in preaching the gospel, that we would persevere as a church despite the difficulty, despite what we're facing, that we would rise through it and become stronger for it. In Christ's name, amen.